one of the biggest challenges in the business is, you know, when you when you put new features or live ops or things in a in a live game, and they're they're not explicitly opt in, right? There, it's a part of the experience that just exists for everyone. You know, who who found that motivating? Who was really satisfied with that, right? Who really was was engaging with it versus just you know went along for the ride because it was overlaid on top of their existing game experience? At the end of the day, like if any given product owner or product leader knows who they're making the game for. They understand the unique benefit that they are providing in the context of the market, right? They know how their game does or does not align or, or elevate what's what's currently available. They know what game attributes really matter in driving player loyalty, and, and that's where they're, they're focused. Then we're doing a good job. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel, and as always, I'm joined by Brett Novak, the CEO of Liquid and Grit. And on today's episode, we chat with Chris Williams. Chris has been a leader in product, in studio, and now in insights in console and mobile games for over 20 years, having held notable positions like project lead at LucasArts, VP of mobile at PlayFirst, where he helped bring Diner Dash to the iPhone, and VP and GM of Skyrocket Studios at Big Fish Games. Currently, Chris is the VP of Global Insights at Aristocrat Digital, which owns Big Fish, Product Madness, and Plarium. We get into the weeds on all things insights, how they can be more effectively utilized by makers and developers, how insights offer a way for them to more deeply understand and empathize with their players, how insights will have to respond to a future where consumer privacy laws continue to become more stringent, and much, much more, all on this episode of Creators at Work. You started your career in console and PC, which is somewhat of a theme we see with some of the, the insights guys in the industry. And then you spent almost a decade working in the world of at LucasArts. I'm sure there's a, a quite a bit of stories there. And then shifted into mobile products early on at PlayFirst, right when the iPhone came out, which is super cool and interesting in the early days. And there's a lot of unique things happening early on at uh, iOS and, and on the iPhone. And I mean, from my understanding, you were basically trying to push PlayFirst into iOS, like basically on day one. What made you see this immense value on mobile when it was so young, especially coming from console, which at the time was obviously reigning supreme. I mean, mobile wasn't making any money or not much money then. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a, a great run at LucasArts, made a ton of really successful uh, PC and console games, but that was around the time when those teams were getting huge, the games were getting increasingly complex. And when I moved over to, to play first, you know, the iPhone was just coming out and you could just see the way consumers were engaging with this device. And, you know, Apple at the time was calling it magical and, and consumers were perceiving it that way. You could just tell the first time you held them that it was going to change gaming. And, you know, there, there wasn't obviously the business model around it yet to make it all that interesting to the big players, but the hardware was just really exciting. And to be honest, a lot of the big publishers were, were chasing Zynga into Facebook games, right? I mean, that, that was the time they, that they, that was where the big money was at. And that's where everyone was, was pointed. So PlayFirst had, had Diner Dash and Diner Dash was incredibly well-known IP, uh, which helped with discoverability. And there, there was no mobile marketing back then, right? There was... <laughs> 
tons of demand. Uh, discoverability was based entirely on your rankings uh, and Apple featuring, right? And and uh, Diner Dash did very well in in both. So on any given day, like we had two or three of the top ten paid apps in the App Store, which is hilarious to think we were spending zero dollars on user acquisition, right? So not only was it exciting, but to be honest, it was like, it was, it was easy, right? I mean, we were showing up with this incredibly popular IP. Consumers were super excited. Uh, there wasn't even free to play in those early days, right? There was no in-app purchase. You had to create a free version of your game and then a paid version of your game and then like switch people over. Um, you know, it was, it, it was early, early days. Um, but when we first put Diner Dash in the app store, we were changing $9.99 for it. Right. And, and, uh, and people were paying it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was obvious to, to me, and obviously that you know, as Play First evolved over the years that I was there, it did become Play First's core business uh, and core platform as they moved away from PC Mac and and Facebook, and and ultimately, you know, that's why Glue. I, I you know, I had left by the time the Glue acquisition took place, but it was it was early early days. You know, mobile as defined by smartphone. I mean, there was a there was a prior era of mobile. Um, which no one really likes to talk about before the iPhone came out, but the iPhone really changed things, obviously. I remember our, on Zynga Poker, our UA conversations each quarter, it was basically just us going, we need a million dollars. And them saying, no, you're only going to get this much. And then we're saying, we need two. And, and then just yeah. spending it. I mean, that was yeah. basically what UA was back then. And it was, yeah. I mean, those are the real numbers for a game yeah. that was making three quarters of a million dollars a day. We were, I think talking a few million dollars in ua back then a quarter yeah. and it was literally just bartering and there was nothing to do with like roi or anything it was just you spent the yeah. money and you moved on so yeah. you spent the bulk of your career uh you know leading teams making games but obviously now you have switched on to insights you know just curious why this switch and what, what do you like about the new direction of your career yeah, I mean, when I look back at the past sort of twenty plus years, and I think of you know early career in in console gaming, I mean, we were just making games for ourselves, right? I mean, those games we we were the consumer. Um, there was very little research, very little customer feedback. You know, if if maybe you went and did a little bit of play testing in the lab, but for the most part, we just sit down and, and play the real time strategy game or the first person shooter that we were making. And if and if we thought it was cool, the consumers were going to think it was cool. So, um, and we you know our our, our only KPI was our Metacritic score, which was a bunch of like, you know, people just like us who were going to sit around and play the games and give us a review on IGN or GameSpot. And so that we were driving, you had to get 85% or above. That was like the magic threshold. That's how we were aligned to the consumer. And yeah, so it was a lot of opinion. It was a lot of ego. And sometimes it was a successful outcome and sometimes it wasn't. I mean, obviously, you know, at Lucas, we had the benefit of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones IP, um, which consumers, you know, showed up already loving. But then even in the early days of mobile, right, you, the games were so simple that they're, you know, you just make an MVP, throw it in the app store. Um, there, there really wasn't a, a need. Well, there probably actually was a need, but there certainly wasn't an appetite to go out and do months worth of, of research and analysis before making a thing. You just made it and you put it live. And at the time, you know, people would show up or they, or they wouldn't. And now obviously the investment in mobile is, is, is massive, both from the development and the marketing standpoint. And you know, what I saw in my time uh, as a GM, you know, within Big Fish was I saw teams working really hard for really long periods of time and and in some cases failing to launch a successful game, right? And and when I think back on some of those games, they they just weren't 
credibly based on a solid foundation of or, or knowledge of understanding what the market or the player. Um, they're very well intentioned. They're very capable teams, very creative. And, and, you know, under my leadership at the time, like we were just, we were just pointed in the wrong direction. And so when I reflect back on that time and that transition, like I knew there had to be a better way to make more informed decisions about, about the games we were making, right? How can we reduce that risk of failure? How can we, you know, increase the odds of making a hit? And it was also clear to me that with the investments required in these games scaling up, that the business was prepared to make that investment in the insight. So, you know, I, I at the time when I was a GM, I wasn't really looking at insights that I felt like I could trust. Um, I didn't know how to leverage the data. I didn't really even know um, that the questions I was asking could be answered with with research. Uh, and so when I had the opportunity to flip over to the other side of that coin, um, I jumped at it. You know, now I'm in a position as an insights leader. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly empowering others with data. Um, I'm fueling other people's success, and it's and it's it's a different role, obviously, but it's very rewarding, and it's it's a new direction that I really like, you know, and 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 so now, having been on the other side of it, right, I I, I can uh, you know challenge myself and my teams to put forward that that compelling data that uh, can help guide the business. That's it, interesting to hear because I think it's a similar progression to my career. I was on the product side, and obviously now I'm on the research side, and I think I did a similar analysis where. I realized that insights was going to get more valuable over mm-hmm. time as the games became more expensive. So the investment up front was going to get more valuable and the investments and in insights. And I think secondly, I felt like I wasn't learning as much. I had I have sort of an academic preference in a way of spending time in Zynga. We did that where we would look at features, but I, I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to spend more time doing that. And I, I find at least on the insight side, you can do that. You can really dig your teeth into figuring things out. And I find that to be pretty rewarding. Yeah. I also personally, I personally play a ton of free-to-play mobile games and I personally invest quite a bit of time and money in them, which is a double-edged sword, right? When you're when you're leading a studio, um, you can be, if, if you're not careful, you can be that executive that's like played the hot new game and has an opinion on why it's successful um, and and bring that to bear on your, on your teams and your studio uh, in a way that may or may not be correct, right? And so, you know, because I am, I am a particular type of gamer uh, and you know, I bring all my biases and projections along with me when I when I play any given game. So, you know, I think that that's the other piece of it is, yeah, like you want the ability to go deep, but you also want the ability ultimately to understand, you know, who who you're making the game for. And in many cases, it's it's not yourself. I was just talking about this in my previous meeting. I think it's a benefit and a curse, like you said, to be a player of that game, particularly when you're early on in your career, because then you lean on your instincts or your gut or whatever you want to call that way too often. And you don't learn the skills of insights, product management, all those skills that you need to, I think, really know to make a great game. Because so often we are making a game for someone else, even if it's a game we play, because maybe we're not the person that spends a thousand dollars a month or whatever it is, right? So even even then we have to push ourselves and it's it's easier if you're doing it on a game that you have no interest in some in some ways. And it's harder in some ways as well, because that instinct is obviously important. Now you're a VP of Global Insights at Aristocrat Digital, leading a super fast growing team that's, uh, I think, upwards of 20 people now, if we're correct on our research. And you're supporting big companies like Big Fish, Product Madness, the MA, and other strategic initiatives. Talk a little bit about, I think, first your your team mission, like how you think about the team mission for this entire insights team. 
Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, right, like smart publishers are doing their homework upfront, right? These are the bets are getting too big to just wing it. And, you know, Aristocrat and Aristocrat Digital by extension is a, is a highly competitive company, right? They've always studied the market very closely. And it, it's a company with a very customer-centric culture, right? I mean, they put the player first. They want the player at the center of every every decision. So those are those are sort of pillars and, and tenants um, that that predate Aristocrat even getting into mobile games. But I, you know, at the end of the day, free play mobile games are getting increasingly sophisticated. Um, so a lot of the kind of ad hoc sort of market analysis or, or player research that may have been done at the game team level or at the studio level, you know, there's a need to kind of centralize that um, and and bring that together in a way where that knowledge sharing can be in one place, so that, that knowledge creation and can be in one place and then ultimately shared shared across the business. So, you know, the insights group within Aristocrat Digital is relatively new. Uh, we were previously, you know, situated within Big Fish, and our mission, you know, really revolves around the concept of of value. And and so we we when we think about what the value that you know that we can provide to the business. Players are very diverse, right? There's there's no two players are the same. So what is what is the benefit that they want? Like what do our player segments value? And then also what is the unique value position that we offer in the market, right? It's a crowded competitive market, right? Are we are we out there enhancing proven playbooks? Are we trailblazing new ground? Like what is what is the value that, that we alone can provide in, in our products? And then how do we calibrate like these incredibly complex game economies to, to deliver effective price value? And so you know, all those, oftentimes we just tie it back to, okay, you know, what are the, what are the benefits that players want as an insights team though, we want to drive impact. Like we're, we're not a sort of drop and run reporting team where we, where we create some wonderful piece of research, you know, leave it on a, on a product owner's desk and say, good luck to you. You know, we, we really want to be a part of the outcome. Um, and so we're, we're constantly looking at how our insights drive measurable impact. You know, we're a cost center. We, we, we don't directly generate revenue, but we want to be able to link the output of, of what we do to business results. We're also very focused on synthesizing, right? So, so how can you bring competitor data, consumer data, product data together to form a, a holistic view of, of where the opportunities are? I mean, there's having been a GM, right? If you're getting disparate data from disparate groups, um, oftentimes it's hard to synthesize all that. So we've we've got a wide range of business customers, right? We support executives, we support studio leaders, you know, product leaders creative leads. We've got all kinds of partner organizations like data science that we, we work with. We're very instrumental in, in defining marketing strategy. And, you know, h- historically, I think for me, when I, when I was a GM or a product manager, I was incredibly focused on behavioral data. Like what are players doing, right? What are those very seductive, you know, KPIs, game telemetry metrics that I'm getting? But that oftentimes reduces the player to an average, right? You can't build empathy with an ARPDAO trend, right? It's like, and, and so at the core of what we do, whether it's through market data or player research, like we want to help connect the business to that player and, and have them be empathetic for the person they're building the game for. And that that's really, you know, at, at the heart of what we do. I've never heard that, but I love that it's saying that you can't you can't have empathy over an average. I don't know if that's your own, but you should trademark it. That's so spot on. But every time you average something, particularly in gaming, with the number of users that all these games have, it's it's almost like a meaningless number. 
right? Yeah. For some of these metrics, if you're trying to understand the player, that is. A quick question about that that you said was, could you go a little bit deeper, if you feel comfortable with it, on how you apply value to an insight that you created or maybe an example or something that you do? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious of, yeah, you don't want to drop the research on the paper on the desk and walk off. Like, how do you kind of follow that through and, and attribute value to it? In every piece of analysis that we do, we always want to bring forward recommendations, right? Actionable recommendations. And, and one of the tricks in what we do is to not have those recommendations be like out of left field or wildly misaligned with what the business is is doing. Because I've, I've sat in that seat before where some you know well-intentioned uh, team comes forward and plunks something on my desk and says, oh, you should really be doing this thing you're not thinking about doing at all. It's tough, you know, it's tough sometimes or, or the things that you're actually not technically capable of executing on or, or, you know, so we try and align as best we can with and, and really be demand driven and focus on the questions that the business wants to ask. But yeah, we, we stick with it. Like I literally at the end of, of any, every quarter, I, I challenge the team to, to put examples uh, in front of me and by extension, you know, where are the business outcomes that we've been a part of? Um, where's the exciting new feature that we helped inform and help drive into that hit game that is now driving, you know, a 20% revenue lift, you know, and I, and I think it's, it's obviously on the product teams to execute and they ultimately own the outcome and the success or failure of that feature or that new game. But we want to, you know, we want to want to be a part of it uh, for, for, for uh, whether it's successful or not. And so, you know, we'll end our, our insights presentations and rec- with, with, with recommendations. We'll ask the teams, you know, which one of those recommendations they're going to act on, if any, and then we'll follow it. And sometimes we have to follow it for like six months to a year, right? It's, it's <laughs> sometimes, you know, by the time an insight turns into action and ultimately results an business impact, it's it's not often a, or not always a quick turn. Sometimes it's a quick turn. I mean, sometimes we'll put research in front of the marketing team that shows them that there's an opportunity to, you know, enhance their market positioning or their messaging or highlight a particular feature and that'll flow into UA creative and that'll be very quick and that'll be very obvious and very measurable um, that that insight, you know, is, is attracting, you know, new users at scale at a, at a lower CPI. Um, and that's simple math on, on the business impact of that insight. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. It's like one of those things that's obvious, but not often done. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I, I love that you do that. The next question we uh, I'd love to know more about is how the insights is structured and how you partner with the business and game teams, because as you were just mentioning that, that really is so much of the, the the hard part of it sometimes like the insights you get to sit in your little you know computer and figure it all out and it's really the the integration of the team and the collaboration and the convincing and the like you said aligning your goals and things like that that can be sometimes a difficult part how is the you think the structure and the partnering how do you do that yeah so we've we've actually got three uh, sub teams within the insights uh, organizations. There's a competitive intelligence team. Um, you know, they're very focused on the market data, uh, you know, market segmentation, looking at different genres, understanding revenue and download trends, highlighting new in- new entrants. I mean, they're they're doing teardowns, you know, trying to spot the MA targets. And, and so that's a group that is is really immersed in you know observing and reporting on on what's going on since obviously that's that's hugely informative to, to our strategy uh then we have a consumer insights team so it's you know it's quant and qual research it's talking to our own players it's talking to new target audiences i mean we're out there you know pulling apart 
motivations, preferences, attitudes. We're doing segmentations. We're running concept tests. We're doing play tests. I mean, we're, we're doing health checks on our players. It's, it's all the things that you would expect from a, from a, a scaled consumer insights team within any tech company. But obviously, we're doing it in a way that's very focused on gamers and, and, our, and, our, and our mobile players. Um, and then we've got another team we call product insights. And, and these, these are an interesting group, right? They're really, and they're actually, you know, a group that partners pretty closely with you, Brad. I mean, it's, they're really kind of free to play game economy experts, right? They're looking at the calibration of the games. And, and this is, I think, increasingly becoming important that you, you can't just make it, take a cursory look at a game and really understand uh, why it's successful or not, whether it's our own game or whether it's a competitor game. Right, you've got to get in there and really understand how those levers are calibrated to deliver price value. And that this, so this is a team of, of data analysts and product managers who um, who do that uh, at a portfolio level. And then supporting sort of all of the above, we're, we're, we have a, a team that we call our game explorers. Um, and these are individuals who just go really deep. Like they, they just really go, you know, look, go sort of forensic on what's happening out there in the market and uh, help us understand, you know, well beyond just sort of easy observations, what's going on out there and, and uh, what's, what's proving successful for players. And then in terms of uh, how you partner with the business and game teams, like how does that look? Yeah. So, so there's, you know, operationally, obviously we've got, you know, regular reporting. Um, but, you know, at, at the heart of what we do is we like to be integrated and embedded, right? We like to be considered a part of the core team. You know, we don't want people to come to us uh, and think of us as a, you know, a periodic engagement. And so we want the insight to be at the right time. And so we want to stay very close to the development team. So we're often, you know, attending regular meetings uh, just to, to maintain visibility on what they're doing, what they're thinking, and not just sitting and waiting for the request to roll in. But, I, you know, I would say the operational piece is relatively straightforward. The, the more difficult part uh, and the part that I, I, you know, I personally work work hard at is, is the partnership piece, right? And figuring out, you know, who that partner is. Uh, many people are to the, are relatively new to the organization, right? We're growing very quickly. We're hiring a lot of new people. Some join the business with a, like a very deep understanding of how to partner with insights and other slightly like have no idea what we do and, and what we can do for them. Right. So there is, you know, a, a key part of what we do is, is building that, that partner relationship, just, you know, asking them a ton of questions. What do you want to know? They're not going to come to you with a fully formed thought about the, exactly the type of research they want to run or exactly the type of analysis they want to do. So, you know, you just can just ask them a bunch of questions about what they want to know. And then we go do the legwork and figure out how best to answer that question. But at the heart of it is trust, right? Like the, your, your, your business customer has to believe um, that you genuinely want to help them succeed and have the capabilities to do so, right? And, and I think that is inherent in what we do. Uh, and a big part of that is, is being empathetic to them, right? Like, what is feasible for them? Uh, you know, making games is hard. <laughs> Insights organizations that oversimplify and, and throw recommendations over the wall that are that are not realistic are, are not well liked. And so I think we, we really want to be aligned to, you know, what they're thinking, show up with the right insight at the right time, and, you know, also be aligned to the other data inputs that they're getting. Like we, we have to be aligned to their behavioral data, right? I mean, if they're seeing a trend um, and their data scientist is selling them something, you know, can we get behind that and put more definition around it, right? Can we put the why behind that that uh, that KPI and get in there and, and be a part of that conversation rather than being, you know, distant and adjacent or, or disconnected from that, that conversation? Do you feel like because the insights team has gotten so much stronger that in turn 
the the product team has gotten a little bit weaker on the insights capabilities? Um, no, because I think our, our product teams are still studying the market data. Um, they're still playing competitor games. You know, they're they're still self-serving into a lot of what they can do. But I think what what's shifted is that you know, that product manager just doesn't have the time or the capacity to go as deep as you need to go these days to really understand what's going on, right? And I think there was probably a time in the not too distant past where you could pick up a competitor game, largely understand what it is, why it worked and for whom, developed an important point of view off of that and, and go apply that to your, your product strategy. You know, these games, which is the amount of features and, and the live ops that are running in them now are incredibly sophisticated. Consumers are becoming, you know, more and more segmented in, and, and more and more sophisticated themselves in terms of why they play games. And so it's it's not that the product teams, I think, are are less interested. I mean, I think it's just not realistic for them to do what we do in addition to their day job, which is, you know, running a product and dealing with all the, the tremendous operational complexities associated with, with making a game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We both have shared our our challenges in being insights on the insight side. And one of the biggest things is, I wouldn't say the right word is maybe selling it, but is marketing it, marketing the insights and the value of the insights to the game teams. And because they are super busy and they are balancing a bunch of different inputs, their own, whatever they get from elsewhere, um, you know, any other method that they're using. How do you go about doing that internally at Aristocrat Digital? And is your approach different dependent on the partner or is it just kind of a universal process that that helps you integrate your insights? Yeah, so I think it's um, it's obviously different depending on where the product teams are within their life cycle or, or you know, who who's asking the question, right? I mean, we, we surface a tremendous amount of data that informs strategy at a, at a very high level. And that's that's a different approach, obviously, than when you're working with you know a product manager on on defining a feature or, or refining a live ops event, and so it's it's going to change. But you know, one of the things that that we aspire to where we can is you know how can we create methodologies for analysis and how can we put forward our data in a way that is has some degree of consistency, right? Has some some benchmarks, um, has the appropriate context. Like every everyone knows that like. 60% D1 retention is, is a good thing, right? Like, like that is largely understood. Um, so if that is what your D1 retention dashboard is telling you, you know, you, you, you're, uh, you know, you got something at least for, for a day, you know, when we go out and, and ask players to, to, you know, self-report their appeal or intent to download of, of a new game concept, oftentimes the business doesn't know what good looks like. Right. And, and so I think one of the burdens that we have given that this type of research and this type of analysis is, you know, it's not new in, in in consumer insights since consumer insights has been around forever, and the types of methodologies we use are, are very well understood and, and well worn. But it's not as familiar to a lot of our business customers, and so we we do have a burden of kind of educating them about the capability, educating them about what good looks like, what they should be aspiring to, and then how to interpret the data, right? And and what is actionable about it, and how not to cherry pick it, and and really you know to take the right insight away. Um, and that's really where our, where our teams will help. So, you know, I think the more that we can sell not only our capabilities, I mean, we, you know, not dissimilar from an agency, like we have a capabilities deck, right? We, we sit down with new stakeholders and take them through what it is we can do for them. We have case studies, which is all important for, for familiarizing the business with what we do. Uh, and then we also, you know, there are 
define touch points. There are certain pieces of research that, that it's expected that we do at various points in the game's life cycle. And those are the important ones to obviously have, have benchmarks around. Speaking of the day one retention uh, metaphor that you were mentioning, one of the things that we were thinking about doing is benchmarking users in the economy systems because we do a lot of economy teardowns obviously and mm-hmm. we'll work with different teams and they'll say yeah we have light payers or this definition right five dollars a week or whatever and mediums are this and things like that and and we'll switch it and we won't really keep a standardized system for that but i'm now starting to debate whether that's the right thing and maybe we should just have these like standard player types and then just break down all the games and then we can reference old economies do you do you do that kind of thing at, where you try to start standardizing stuff across genres and, and yeah and yeah we're always looking for ways to sort of abstract some of the key concepts behind you know free-to-play game economies into a way that is transferable, right? That is where, where we can tie it back to, I mean, you know, at a base principles level, right? When someone spends money in a free-to-play game, they're expecting some kind of benefit. They're expecting some kind of an advantage. You know, they're looking for an ROI. Um, and there are ways that, that we've developed where we can abstract that, quantify that. And even though game X might not be exactly the same as game Y, because they rarely are, you know, no one wants to copy paste you know, economy values between games, but it's, it's, it's really making sure that at the end of the day, those, what those values are delivering, right. Is, is a net benefit to the player, especially the player who's choosing to invest money in a, in a game that could be played for free. So, so yeah, we are looking for standardization there and that, you know, those consistencies are helpful, right. Because comparative benchmarks are powerful, especially when you're comparing to something that is not successful to something that is. I mean, this is one that I don't know how to answer. Uh, in my own business. So this is a tough one, but how do you know you are doing a good job on the insights team? I think yeah, yeah, no, it's so so it's a great, Tell it's me. A great question. Tell no, me I'm no, writing I, it down I, right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> well listen, at, at the end of the day, like if any given product owner or product leader knows who they're making the game for or the or a game feature for they understand the unique benefit that they are providing in the context of the market, right? They know how their game does or does not align or, or elevate what's what's currently available. They know what game attributes really matter in driving play, player loyalty, and, and that's where they're they're focused. Then we're doing a good job, right? And so so that knowledge can come from a variety of places. In many cases, it, it, it comes from us. We don't have to be the sole providers of it. In some cases, it might be obvious, and in some cases, it might be non-obvious, right? And and so I think. What we want to be sure of is, is that that information is in place and that we're building a credible strategy off of that. If we're making hit games, right? If we're putting out successful games, it's, it's, it's a hit-driven business. If we're not putting out hit games, you know, we, we need to take some ownership in that. We need to be able to tie, obviously, those business outcomes back to our insights. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, if, if, I, if I believe that the people out there driving product and driving strategy um, are equipped with the best possible information we can put forward and are taking it seriously and, and making decisions based off of it, then I, then I think we're doing what we're, what we're put in place to do. One of the biggest challenges, I remember my time at Zynga when I worked with central teams, like they were always getting bombarded with every game team. Like I can remember that email team, I would email and just, yeah, they wouldn't respond. And I remember my boss was saying, oh, you can't just email the email team. Like you have to, and they were across the street. You have to go over to their office, walk in their door yeah. and demand that they send out emails for your game. Because if you don't, like you're never going to get it because we've got nine game teams 
requesting they send out emails for us, right? And I think that's probably one of, one of the more challenging things of of building a team and estimating the demand and all that because you have such uh, um, variability in the demand that you're going to get. One day you may get like nine requests, the next day you might get zero, and you have different game teams of different one different things. It's a very real challenge. I would say it's one of my greatest challenges leading this group is, you know, demand always exceeds capacity and, but you don't want to be in a position of saying no, um, right? Because you, you've got a, a business stakeholder that's showed up and wants to know something and, you know, you don't want to let them down. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we, that helps us prioritize our efforts is, you know, we have this concept of leverage, right? Like, is it nice to know research or is it, is it, actually really have a high likelihood of inspiring action and driving a business outcome, right? So, so in the intake process, when we're having those initial conversations or, or feeling that email, you know, it's, it's understanding what, what action it could lead to, right? And, and then we need to build flex capacity, like particularly for our competitive intelligence team, right? I mean, they get hit all the time with the, I need this by tomorrow request. And so that is just the nature of what they do. And so we have to solve for it by not, you know, committing them to, you know, 40 hours a week of, of regular reporting, because they've, they've got to have that capacity to, to respond um, when that unexpected request comes in. Right. The other thing we, we try and do is we have, you know, the full meal deal, robust approach to answering the question. And then where we can, we try and have a, a quick and dirty sort of fast turn approach, right? And so that will help get the business pointed generally in the right direction um, when we can get out there and, and get them something directional and maybe initiate the more robust approach in parallel. And then the other thing we got to do is have sort of a release valve for overflow, right? There's there's no shortage of, of capable external partners, um, many of whom we have existing relationships with. And uh, in the event that it's those sort of nine requests a day scenario that you describe, right? We've we've got some people that we can turn to to, to help out um, who we trust and and do great work. Do you ever associate any cost to it to the team game teams? I mean, like one concept I've read about in the, one of my favorite books, Product Management Flow, is is you would just sign a cost to it, so you'd have like examples like you give out tokens or something and then you know game teams can trade for them or they can use them or anything like that or is it is it just pushback and 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 timing yeah i mean we haven't sort of tokenized it you know we do we do have the concept of sort of core research that we budget for versus you know capabilities that that the business needs to fund themselves right and so Obviously, if if we're viewed as sort of a, a a bottomless pit of capability and budget, you know, everyone's going to ask us for everything. So we 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 do put price tags on things, and and that can sometimes be a forcing function for whether the research is is really required or not. No, we haven't we haven't systematized it as you describe down to sort of a, a, a token in token out level. But you know, it's 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 a conversation, and ultimately, it's it's an ROI conversation. But um, you know, doing. A thirty thousand or fifty thousand dollar piece of research before committing five to ten million dollars for building a game makes a lot of sense. Um, where it gets a little more nuanced is okay. You know, you've you're you're out there exploring something, or you've got a you know a feature that you want to put live in you know an existing game. You know, how deep do you want to go on on informing that feature versus just building it, putting it live, and and iterating on it, right? Because I think there's at some point, you just got to go do the thing um, and see if it works. I, I don't know how it would be well implemented, but I know some teams do the budget thing, right? Where it's assigned to game teams, which kind of helps to push back, right? Because 
if there's no cost, there's no downside to asking the insights team to do it, right? Oh, hey, right. can you just, I'm just kind of curious what the uh, economy flow is of the, you know, this game. Could you just go play it for three weeks? And you're like, well, you know, and, 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 and it's difficult because you don't want to be a jerk about it, right? I mean, sometimes we get requests where, well, why, like you said, and 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 it's, you, you have to kind of phrase it in this nice way, but because you don't want to, because, because sometimes they obviously have really good reasons. Like, well, we're rebuilding our buy page. Like, wow. Okay. That makes a lot of sense versus oh, I'm just curious. Yeah. You got, so. you want to avoid the nice to know. You also want to avoid, you know, sometimes we, one of the advantages of, of staying close to the teams is, is you got to kind of have a sense of where they're headed and get out ahead of them. Right. Because what inevitably happens is, Hey, we've decided to build this feature. We're starting development on it tomorrow. Here's the spec. Can you go do a robust analysis of, you know, market comps and, um, and player attitudes and preferences around these types of features. But like, we're, we're literally have people writing code on it as we speak and it's like, it's too late. Right. And so, um, cause you've already probably decided what you're going to do and you're doing it. And, and, uh, so, you know, what we do oftentimes, you know, we're focused on the thing that's, that's six months out on the roadmap, right. That we're thinking, oh, okay, here's a big, you know, chunk of your game that doesn't exist yet that you're logically going to build. How can we get out ahead of that? Um, engage with your players, uh, look at the market and put forward some, some thoughts and some recommendations so that even when you're going into that early design stage, uh, you know, you, you've got the insights in hand. But in that situation where the feature is already in flight, right, there's maybe even already like a revenue forecast associated with it. And so no one, you know, we're not in a position, nor would we want to pump the brakes on that work being done. What we'll say is like, okay, how can we, how can we help guide it? You know, what, what, what aspect of the feature is still in, in, in play as far as being insights informed? And then, you know, once you launch it, um, let's help you connect with your players and figure out who it's working for, right? And one of the biggest challenges in the business is, you know, when you when you put new features or live ops or things in a, in a live game and they're, they're not explicitly opt-in, right? They're, it's a part of the experience that just exists for everyone. You know, who, who found that motivating? Who was really satisfied with that, right? Who really was, was engaging with it versus just, you know, went along for the ride because it was overlaid on top of their existing game experience. And so we will oftentimes help pull that apart and, you know, connect the business to the player, both, you know, players who loved the new feature or the new live ops event and, and those who didn't. Um, and bring that attitudinal data in alongside the behavioral data, which oftentimes doesn't tell the complete story, right? I mean, the behavioral data... It's like, you know, you're standing behind the glass, looking through, um, trying to figure out what the people on the other side of the glass are doing and why they're doing it. Uh, and oftentimes it's instructive, but oftentimes it's, it's you know, missing a big, a big chunk of, of the puzzle. You've obviously been in the industry for, uh, seen the mobile industry from day one, almost in terms of gaming, where do you see insights in particular? And you can talk about also outside of gaming, but I'm curious insights. So you'll have to do both. You'll, you'll definitely have to answer insights, but where do you see insights going in the next like three to five years? Yeah. I mean, one of the trends that's already happening, but I think it will only continue to to further drive business interest towards what it is that we do is sort of the very welcome enhancements in consumer privacy, right? That are making it increasingly difficult for, for tech companies to understand their players without having open and transparent conversations with them, right? And so I think what, what we do is is very open and transparent, right? When we're talking with players, um, they're knowingly contributing to improving our games and they love it, right? Like when we, when we, when we bring players in for research, why are you here? I just want to help make the game be better. Right. And, and that's, that's, that's a, that's a much 
healthier conversation than sneaking around the background, trying to figure out who they are and why they do what they do. And it's more in line with what consumers want. Right. And, and so I think I definitely see that uh, as a growing interest in our in insights capabilities that that to your point will be expansive beyond gaming, but it's already happening, right? And and uh, and so we are, you know, we're building panels of some of our most enthusiastic gamers. Um, it's fully transparent, opt in, and they're there to help make the game they love be better, right? And that, and that's a great relationship to have with a customer and one that that is completely uh transparent and, and highly compliant with consumer privacy laws you know the other thing that i think will is, is starting to shift is you know back when i was was running a studio or running product insights was kind of periodic it was like every once in a while some well-intentioned researcher would show up in your office with a piece of research saying like seven of the ten people that we you know tested the game with, liked it or didn't like it. And, and it was it was just sort of this like every once in a while insights showed up. And, and I think what we aspire to do is operationalize our data, right? We want to use APIs and integrations and, and continuously be having a conversation with our consumer. Um, and similarly on the market side, right? Like how, how can we be building more live dashboards versus point in time reporting, right? Like, like dusty old PowerPoints. Like we have, you know, an insights repository with a whole bunch of crusty PowerPoint files that no one looks at anymore. How can we do our work in a way that, that brings, you know, market trend analysis, um, you know, player attitudinal data into live dashboards, right? And and so it becomes something that we can we can look at over time. You know, I think that's that's something that we're already starting to do, but I, I think we're going to be moving more towards trackers, you know, trends again to help build that understanding of what good looks like. Uh, and and as you and I have discussed, right? I mean, we as an insights team, we just have to start going deeper, right? Like as these games get increasingly complex, you can't just have a cursory look, right? You can't just glance at something or play it for a day or a week or, or even a month and say, oh, we we understand that. Um, or you know, you, and you can't just you know look at your own player and say, you know, women between the ages of thirty five and fifty. You know, uh, because the demographic segmentation is is largely useless at this point. Um, you know, players are are wildly diverse, uh, motivationally, behaviorally, demographically, um, you know, geographically, uh, and so you need more sophisticated analysis and and data models to to understand you know who you're making the game for. Um, you, you can't you can't just generalize at a very high level. Nice. I love well on that first point. I, I love that answer because, uh, in terms of reframing it, that user data is more upfront, and I think that gaming doesn't do uh, has a big opportunity to gather more input from players. Listen, it's a good thing. We don't want to be creeping around gathering data. Like we can ask these people. I like your second point too, and we've talked about this, but I'm starting to think about what we're going to do with our product, potentially investing less in our reports and more in, or maybe just the same in reports and more in the updating of information as a summary of it, right? Like, and so instead of saying this collection feature went live and it did well, it will just take that information and feed it into the collection feature page and just add that as a new reference, right? Because yeah. 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 No, I think that's a really smart approach and definitely, you know, depending on the stakeholder, I mean, obviously high level executives want simple summarized reports and they want the ability to read those. And, and that's great. And that's an important part of what we do um, to inform the high level strategy. But a lot of our stakeholders are, are 
really sophisticated data savvy, you know, we call it kind of call them the self servers, right? Like they want to go in there and, and read everything and understand everything. So yeah, I think making the data more explorable and, and relevant and, and making a commitment to, to keep it up to date is, is I think where insights is headed, right? Because it's, as soon as you publish the report, <laughs> as soon as you hit send, something has changed, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, and I think um, that report doesn't necessarily become invalid, but it certainly becomes potentially not the latest greatest on what's going on out there with the market and what's going on out there with consumers. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And thanks again to Chris for coming on to the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out. I don't believe I've revealed too many um, secret sauce tips. Uh, uh, well, if it, if it helps, uh, Toyota used to um, gladly show their factory to anybody who wanted to see it uh, because they were yeah. very confident that they were going to have a very difficult time to actually implement it. So even if there are some secrets you said, it's, uh, it's not the knowledge of the secrets that make them valuable.